From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, SIA, a new paradigm. What the total SIA does is tells me the vector that I need to add to that one diopter that will tell me what I have to correct with the toric lens. First this. I know many of the audience of As Seen From Here also watch my live conference interviews on ewreplay.org. These brief video programs highlight the most important news from major ophthalmology meetings and number in the hundreds every year. But if you haven't watched ewreplay.org recently, you've got to check it out. iWorld Replay has really upped its game with super video production and fantastic content. ewreplay.org. We've just renovated and we'd love to have you over. Jack Holliday taught me that I'm calculating surgically induced astigmatism wrong. More than that, I'm thinking about SIA wrong. But before we get to the nuts and bolts, I want to describe the purpose of this podcast episode by analogy. In 1988, Stephen Hawking published A Brief History of Time to much critical acclaim. Although many people bought the book, few finished it because it was too technical. To address this, Hawking published a less technical, a briefer history of time in 2005. I recorded two interviews with Jack Holliday. Today's program is the less technical of the two. The next podcast is a bit of an experiment for me, but I'll describe that in greater detail next time. Before we discuss the idea of compensating for surgically induced astigmatism, let's define some goals here, Jack. At what amount of residual astigmatism is patient, does patient satisfaction decrease? Okay, that's, that's a very good question. The definition, well, what we find is that if the blur is more than one half of a diopter of residual blur, then patients are not happy, okay? Now, what is blur, okay? Blur is not only the spheral equivalent prediction error, okay, how if you are in the spheral equivalent, but it's also the amount of residual astigmatism, okay? Sure. In other words, both residual cylinder and spheral equivalent error both have an impact on the quality of vision. So, for example, let's say you had a spheral, you were targeting for emetropia and you came out with a spheral equivalent of minus one. And it was spherical, okay? Yeah. Well, that that minus one uh, spheral equivalent error, if the guy is a perfect sphere, has different vision than somebody that has a spheral equivalent error of minus one and also has astigmatism, okay? Yeah. So, so they both contribute. Now, I define uh, the equation for that somewhat complicated. But I defined a thing called the defocus equivalent way back when, when Doug and I were looking at this, when we wrote the article on how you calculate the CERC. And what I said is, it's the spheral equivalent error, the absolute value of that, plus one half the absolute value of the cylinder. And if those, if those values add up to more than a half a diopter, 
the patient's not happy. So if you have a, a person that came out with a spheroequivalent error of zero and has a half a diopter of astigmatism, that's okay. Or if he has a half a diopter spheroequivalent error and has no astigmatism, that's okay. But the most you can have where you have a little of each is a quarter of a diopter of spheroequivalent error and a quarter of a diopter of residual astigmatism. That also adds up to a half. You see what I mean? Yeah, of course I so do. So the limit is that the defocus equivalent, the sum of the spheroequivalent, absolute value of the spheroequivalent equivalent plus one half absolute value of one half of the cylinder has to be less than one half a diopter for people to be happy. Initial attempts at determining surgically induced astigmatism were focused on determining the amount of flattening at the meridian of the main wound. To to some extent, even the incorporation of uh, the the cochnomogram is is also predicated on the idea of sort of net flattening in the in the direction of the of the wound. M- more no, modern concepts. No, 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 no. So no. tell me about that. That, that. No, no, no. That's absolutely false, John. Okay. Now, here's here's what the first five minutes of my talk at Astros is going to be. Limbal relax paired limbal relaxing incisions and arc arcuate keratotomies paired are not even close to equivalent to a cataract wound in the horizontal meridian. And here's why, all right? When I make limbal relaxing incisions, okay? Okay, so that's the big concept right there. Limbal relaxing incisions and arcuate keratotomies are not even close to being similar to what a temporal cataract incision does. Now the question that is why? Well, because what happens is, in limbal relaxing and arcuate keratotomies, number one, they're partial thickness and normal to the cornea, right? Right. When you make a limbal relaxing or an arcuate incision, you make it perpendicular to the cornea, number one. And number two, you make it about 90% depth so you don't go down to decimals. Correct. Right? Yep. Okay. Now, in a cataract incision, what do you do? Well, first of all, you make a little bit of entry and then you go oblique up the thickness of the cornea and then you go back again into the cornea so that the optical zone or the diameter of the internal incision is much different than the external decision you with me yeah that's true okay it's much different and so what happens is what people don't realize is that when you do a cataract incision and you make that internal oblique and you go up and make the internal incision a smaller diameter, the effect of flattening the posterior cornea horizontally by making a full thickness incision does not induce against the rule. I mean, does not not induce flattening. Well, I take that back. It causes flattening, but flattening of the posterior surface of the cornea is with the rule. Right, right. It has the opposite um, effect. Yeah, whereas, okay, so what happens is that little keratometric thing that you showed, the first thing that we find with keratometry is that two or two and a half millimeter sample is not very effective in showing a change in the cataract rune that's out of 12 millimeters on the front surface. Remember what we got with with the rule? We got 0.05 diopters of against the rule. So we didn't even get a with the rule change. 
the only time we got with a with rule change is if the guy had against the rule to start with and we made an anterior incision and it was like 0.03 of with the rule. So the point is you have to have a steep horizontal cornea in order to get any flattening if you make a paired LRI. If you make a one-sided full thickness cataract incision, you hardly get any, you don't get any with the rule of change in a with the rule patient, but in an against the rule, if you have 100 people, you'll pick up a 0.05 diopters of width of with the rule. The point is, you almost get no with the rule change in the cornea from a cataract wound. And that's what Coke shows from his Baylor nomogram. Because remember, in people that have 0.75 diopters of with the rule, he still says you should add 0.6 diopters of against the rule. So that's not flattening at all. That's steepening of the horizontal. That's not with the rule. That's against the rule. So what I'm saying is Cope was the first to show us that you don't get with the rule changes from a cataract incision temporally. You get against the rule. Limbal relaxing incisions and arcuate keratotomies are paired incisions, okay? Right. Paired. There are two of them, and we do it on both sides. The cataract incision is not paired. That's the first and most important thing. The second thing is that the arcuate and limbal relaxing incisions are perpendicular to the cornea where they're made. That's absolutely not true of a cataract incision. They're very oblique. And the third is that the limbal rela paired limbal relaxing incisions are not full thickness, whereas the cataract is. And when you because of that, the limbal relaxing and uh, arcuates have no effect on the posterior surface. Whereas a full thickness cataract wound that goes through allows that to split. And then on top of that, you go through with this cannula and mouse around there for about five minutes, stretching that open to make sure it's real big. And that effect on the back of the cornea is the predominating factor. And it's against the rule. And that's what Coke reported, but had no explanation as to why. He didn't know why that happened. But, uh, and that's what our article does. It shows that basically, well, so the so point is cataract incision and limbal, paired limbal relaxing incisions are, have an opposite effect on the cornea. I, I, well, so um, I'm going to use the term SIA. Um, but I want to be clear. I uh, want to use it in the way that you use it, which is well, to no, say... Well, no, then you have to say total. Total SIA is the term that Doug Cope, uh in the editorial that came out last month. In fact, in the original article, I called it hybrid SIA because it combines refraction and keratometry. But Doug had an editorial coming out, the fourth one in JCRS, that defines total surgically induced astigmatism as the difference between the refraction and the keratometry. So we went through and changed everything to total SIA so it's consistent with Doug's, Doug's editorial. Sure. And and just just to be clear to the to the to the listeners to to make the point that this is really completely not splitting hairs is is that total SIA represents what the astigmatic change is um, that's attributable to the cataract surgery, but not 
not attributable to you know to to the lens power not 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 from you know whether we've chosen a a a a t5 or a t6 or a zzt150 or whatever it's attributable to to factors that occur during surgery and the position of the lens after surgery things like 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 lens tilt it's what the total is well that in other words well yeah you can say it that way but but here's the thing that counts to the okay here's here's what we would say the thing that counts to the patient is the refractive astigmatism after surgery. Correct. Okay. And the only thing that we measure today accurately is the anterior corneal astigmatism. Okay. Keratometry. That vector difference between the postoperative refraction at the corneal plane minus the, that's why, that's where we started with that equation one minus the preoperative keratometric is the vector that if you add that to the preoperative K reading tells you the ocular refractive astigmatism that you will have with a spherical lens after surgery. And therefore, it's also the amount that if you want to correct that with a toric lens, it's the amount of astigmatism then that when added to the keratometry is the astigmatism that must be corrected with the interocular lens. So I, I am going to to restate exactly what okay. what what you said, but in 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 a in a slightly different sort of mission driven way, which is, is okay. that before surgery, the information that we have to work with is biometry, but our goals. Car well, say keratometry. Yeah, keratometry. Fine. Our goals. Uh, so our pre-op in information are measurements, but our goals are the refraction. So that uh, what we're talking about here with total SIA is the refractive astigmatism postoperatively minus the preoperative keratometry because that's what we what we measure in advance right. of the cataract surgery. Yes. Okay. Okay, and another way you could think of that, Josh, is this. Say a person had one diopter of preoperative keratometric astigmatism, okay? What the total SIA does is tells me the vector that I need to add to that one diopter that will tell me what I have to correct with a toric lens. All right. Let me ask you a uh, an important sort of foundation question on, on which we, we can then build. The resultant um, SIA uh, is often not in a direction, not in an orientation, not a, a, in, in, a, in a meridian that corresponds either with the patient's, is not the same as the patient's preoperative keratometry or the orientation of the wound. Um, the, the, what we're talking about here is that the astigmatism, as described by, by a vector, has a different orientation. Why is this, Jack? Here's the way I would say that. Uh, I would say this. For with and against the rule of astigmatism, the total SIA vector will often result in a uh, new magnitude 
but a meridian that's very close to the original with or against the rule. For any other axis that's not at 90 or 180, the total SIA vector will be a vector that when added to the preoperative keratometry will result in a new axis that may be as much as 10 or 15 degrees different than the steep meridian of the preoperative K. So many times you will not put the IOL at the meridian of the steep K and that occurs anytime the axis of the astigmatism is not at 90 or 180. Is there a dose response, meaning is the influence of this this vector, um, the, the, this variable vector, uh, is it dependent upon the magnitude of the patient's preoperative cylinder? Yes. What we find is that the um, that the total SIA is a function of the magnitude and the axis of the preoperative astigmatism. And so what we find is that because of that, as the uh, magnitude of preoperative astigmatism goes up, so does the magnitude of the total SIA. And at the same time, the axis of the preoperative astigmatism also has a component that depends upon the meridian of the preoperative astigmatism. And as a result, that also has an effect on the amount of uh, astigmatism that must be corrected with the toric IOL. Now, I, I want to, to clarify this. I think this is clear to you and, and me, but I want to clarify this to the to the listeners, what, what you just said, which is we're not talking about the preoperative keratometry um, in the abstract in terms of figuring out um, directly what the lens power is. What we're talking about, I mean, ultimately, this is going to influence both the lens power and the orientation. But what we're talking about is that the SIA itself is variable, uh, both in its uh, amount and its direction as a function uh, of the patient's preoperative keratometry, both uh, preoperative cylinder, uh, well, preoperative keratometry, um, both in terms of the magnitude of the preoperative cylinder and the orientation of the of the preoperative cylinder. That that SIA is not a fixed number. You can't say Surgeon Jones's SIA is 0.4. That's a meaningless number. Uh, right. it, it, it is it is dependent on uh, on biomet on on preoperatively measured biometric factors, meaning in this case keratometry. Um, that's exactly well. What it, yeah, that's right, Josh. And the and the simple way to say that is the magnitude and the orientation of the preoperative keratometry will determine what the total SIA is. And that total SIA will vary in magnitude and in direction. And so what happens is the preoperative keratometry is our starting point, and it then dictates what that total SIA will be. And the sum of those two vectors is what you will ultimately need to correct with the toric IOL. And that point is you can't do that in your head. I realize this is vector math that we're trying to get doctors to think about. 
And the only thing you want to remember is that the preoperative magnitude and axis of astigmatism dictate what the total SIA is going to be. And that total SIA is a vector that won't even be the same as the preoperative keratometry. But it's the vector that when added to the preoperative keratometry gives us the refractive astigmatism that the toric IOL needs to correct. The calculations that you have done and your findings from this study coincide very well with the cochnomogram if the preoperative astigmatism is either against the rule or with the rule, but they don't correlate so well if the preoperative keratometry is oblique. Well, I would, yes, I, I, that's what you said at the end there is absolutely true. But the other thing that we would say is uh, that the cochnomogram of using the 0.6 for with the rule and the 0.2 for against the rule, again, is uh, our constants. And what we're saying is that this calculation that I've described depends upon the magnitude of the preoperative astigmatism. So what would happen is for the calculation that we're speaking of, when the astigmatism goes down, that six-tenths number would go down also. And that uh, when the astigmatism goes up, it goes up. So it's in the same direction as our calculation, but our calculation is also much more specific for with and against the rule because it also depends upon the magnitude of the with and against the rule that the cognomogram doesn't address. So let me ask you the bottom line question, Jack, which is how do I incorporate this new model into my practice? Well, uh, the simplest and easiest way will be that there uh, is an open access website called Hicksoap, H-I-C-S-O-A-P.com, that has a calculator that allows anyone to access that calculator and run the calculation uh, exactly as it is uh, delineated in the article. Now, the second way to, uh, that, that that's available is something that we implemented uh, some time ago. This study that just came out this past month, uh, I started on almost six years ago with Alcon, and it just got published last month because of several iterations and revisions and stuff. So this is not brand new in my mind at all. And we've had this calculation available in the IOL consultant, which is a software program that I uh, have that's been there for almost a year or two. Uh, and it does this toric calculation uh, just exactly the way it points out in the article. And then because I worked with uh, Alcon on this, uh, they have the calculation also. And as we've shown in the article, it gets better results than the Barrett calculator, but just uh, taking them some time to actually implement this. Uh, so what they're doing is they're making it uh, they, the one diopter torque's not even available in the U.S., so it's something that uh, these types of calculations where it's most important with these lower power torque lenses uh, will be available, I'm told, uh, sometime before the uh, ASCRS meeting in San Diego that they will be implementing this in their international calculator. 
the U.S. calculator, I don't know. And uh, those are the only places that it'll be available uh, until people begin to read the article and implement that into their uh, various types of software. Jack, in in addition to to being obviously highly clinically relevant, this is unbelievably fascinating stuff. I mean, it's really, really, really interesting. Uh, Jack, I want to thank you for I mean your your unbelievable generosity with with your with your 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 time. If you've been speaking to me for now about about, about an about an hour, um, I'm ju- I'm really really grateful, and I know that the that the listeners uh, will be too. Well, Josh, and I'm I'm uh, very grateful for you uh, in terms of uh, making this available to people because the uh, quicker that this gets out to the uh, surgeons out there, and and like we know, toric lenses are very popular, and the best way to correct astigmatism, making this making them aware uh, is the first way to actually get this out, so that the ultimate goal for all of us is to get better outcomes for our patients, and by utilizing this total surgically induced astigmatism. It will improve our toric results, and of course, that's the goal for all of us. Jack Holliday comes to us from Houston, Texas. His paper, Improving Toric Intraocular Lens Calculations Using Total Surgically Induced Astigmatism for a 2.5-millimeter Temporal Incision, appears in the March 2019 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Holiday or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.